If you have your Bible with you, please turn to 1 Peter 4, the passage that Dwayne just read to us a moment ago. You've probably heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, he's a German theologian from the early part of the 20th century. Um, you might have heard of a pastor like Aubrey or somebody else uh, quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in a sermon. Um, you might have read or seen a video of some sort of story about um, his death at the hand of the Nazis. Uh, and maybe you even tried to uh, pick up The Cost of Discipleship, one of his uh, most famous books, and tried to read it. Um, he's, uh, he's an interesting character, but he comes from an extraordinary family. Dietrich's father, Carl, uh, was, a, was the chair of a university department of a prominent German university uh, for neurology and psychiatry. He, uh, before the war, before, that's World War I, before the war, Carl uh, ran a hospital, we would now call it a psychiatric hospital in Germany. He was kind of the cream of the crop. And he was German, very German in all the stereotypes. So he would, uh, he loved precision, precision of language. Uh, around the Bonhoeffer table, uh, they had eight children, four boys, four girls. Around the Bonhoeffer table, if you made a statement of fact, you had to be prepared to defend it because Carl would go after you. Um, and he really wanted his children to be precise and to be accurate and to be able to reason and argue. Um, Carl wasn't a, wasn't a Christian, but he was a, he was a good father, but he was tough. And like I said, he was German. He had, he had four sons. Uh, oldest son, Carl Frederick. Um, went on to become a top physicist. Uh, he worked with guys you might have heard of, Max Planck, Albert Einstein, people like that. And he, he had something to do with spinning parahydrogen. I don't even know what that means. Um, and splitting the atom and, and things like that. Uh, just a, just a top-flight guy. The second son, Walter, was killed in action in World War I. And that was a, that was a really devastating thing. Uh, time for young Dietrich. Um, the third son, Claus, went into law and became the top lawyer for uh, the German airline, Lufthansa. Um, and he, he worked and, and was very successful in that job. And then there was Dietrich, the youngest. He actually had a twin sister, which is interesting. Um, and like any young boy, always apparently teased his sister about being 10 minutes younger than he. Um, but at a young age, he decided he wanted to go into theology. Um, he really wasn't a Christian. I mean, he had been baptized, but beyond that, it really wasn't real to him. He saw it as an academic pursuit. He loved the challenge and the, uh, and, and the rigor that goes along with theology. And at that time, Germany was the place to study theology. It was where much of theology and what was happening in theology was happening. And Dietrich was the cream of the crop. He was, uh, he was a top student, and, but still it was very theoretical to him. And it wasn't until the 1930s when Dietrich came to study and, and do some teaching, actually both at Union Seminary in New York City, whenever he, quite by accident, uh, ended up in an African-American congregation in Harlem, in Harlem called the Abyssinian Baptist Church. Um, <laughs> Abyssinian Baptist Church was nothing like Lutheran churches in Germany, was nothing like the mainline churches in Manhattan that he is, was familiar with. 
And it was there that Bonhoeffer first encountered a church with a deep history of suffering. The people in the church, the history of the people in the church, um, as, as an African-American church, as a minority church in, in the wider culture, um, worshipped a suffering Jesus. Not a conquering Jesus, not a militant Jesus, not a warrior God, but a God who suffered. And for Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that dramatically changed the way he approached his theology. Um, from that point on, he, he saw Jesus as a suffering Jesus. And um, it really played out um, his ethics, the way that, that um, he proposed that we, were to, we are to live in a suffering world. So that brings us to 1 Peter. Uh, we started this series back at Easter time, took a break from it last week, picked it back up with Blake Johnson. And uh, it's a letter written by the Apostle Peter to the churches in exile in Asia Minor. This is the area that we now call um, Western Turkey. As Aubrey said, these churches were living in a culture and a society where, Christian, where Christianity did not fit well. The reigning cultural values were at odds with the Christian way of living and the Christian worldview. Paul's concern in this letter is the relationship between the church, the community of believers, and the wider world. Last week, Blake uh, led us as we looked at the last part of chapter 3, and really the last part of chapter 3 and the first part of chapter 4 we're looking at this morning is, is one extended passage. Um, his points, his three points last week, because you have to have three points, right? Um, were, we are to embrace the sufferings of Christ, we are to anticipate the victory of Christ, and we are to remember our baptism. That was some what, what Paul was, or sorry, Peter was proposing at that point. So I grew up in a faithful Christian home. In our home, growing up, we weren't allowed to watch television. We didn't watch movies. Uh, but we did read Fox's Book of Martyrs, um, which, if you're familiar with that book, it's quite gruesome and horrible. The, the, uh, the accounts of torture and, and death of Christians at the hands of government and at the hands of the Catholic Church during the Reformation... Um, quite frightening. And looking back, I don't, I don't know why this was good family reading. But anyway, um, also looking back, I don't know how historically accurate it is. Uh, but it was those family reading times that probably shaped my view of what it means to suffer for the name of Christ. Certainly here on All Saints Day, as we remember the saints who've gone before us, um, there are a there's a good chunk of those folks who passed away, who died, who were tortured for their faith in Christ. And of course, it's not just a historical thing. People around the world right now in Syria and Sudan and China, countless places, are suffering in physical ways and even death for their faith. So the, the problem that that presents for somebody like me, maybe somebody like you, is that when we read about suffering, and we have these images in our mind of people being drawn and quartered uh, in Fox's Book of Martyrs. Um, it, it makes it easy for us to read a book like First Peter where he talks about suffering and think, well, you know, that doesn't apply to me. There's 0% chance that I'm going to be tortured or killed here in Harrisonburg for my faith in Christ. But when you dig into First Peter and in, in, in this epistle, a little bit. Peter doesn't talk about torture. Peter doesn't talk about death or any sort of, you know, 
this sort of physical uh, suffering that, that we think about. In fact, in your early chapters, Peter calls his, uh, his readers sojourners, foreigners, exiles, refugees, trying to make a go of it in the wider community. Not prisoners, not victims, not martyrs. He tells them to live in subject to the governmental institutions of the day. Um, chapter 3 tells them not to revile when they're being reviled. Right? So apparently they were being reviled, which means something like to criticize in an abusive or insulting manner. manner. In chapter 3, he mentions they might be slandered for what they believe and how they act. Later in chapter 4, he says that they might be insulted for the name of Christ. And here, the passage in front of you, like I said, that, that Dwayne read, if you look at verses 3 and 4. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. debauchery. And they malign you. That word malign is the same word as blaspheme. So why were Peter's readers being maligned, being blasphemed? Because they no longer participated in these sort of drunken orgies that they apparently had been participating in in the past and were prominent in, in their culture. So Peter says that's what he's talking about when he's talking about suffering. And when you realize that, then 1 Peter and suffering in 1 Peter seems like it might apply to us after all. You can imagine at your place of work, at your school, at your neighborhood, uh, taking a stand or, doing, or acting differently, living differently in a way that you may receive social pressure. You may receive you know, insults and being reviled for what you believe and how you act. Recall last week in chapter 3 when um, Blake was talking, there was images of Noah and our baptism. Um, and since it's the same section of Scripture, it's interesting here in verse 4 when he refers to um, what was going on around them as a flood of debauchery. A flood of debauchery. And I think what he's trying to do is paint a picture of Noah before the flood uh, when he was building a big boat in his backyard. Jesus said, For in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So Noah didn't fit into his society either. You know, he, they were just having a great time and probably giving him a really hard time for, um, for, for obeying God, for building this boat. I mean, who knows? The Homeowners Association probably came after him. <laughs> so obedience put Noah out of step with his culture. Just the same obedience will put Peter's readers out of step with their culture. And in the same way, there's going to be times when our faithfulness puts us out of step with our culture. So here in this passage... Peter wants to talk about what our community, what our church community, what the Church of the Incarnation should look like as we live as a community in Harrisonburg, in our wider community. 
So, chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Peter points us, first of all, to Christ as a suffering Christ. Not an all-powerful, omnipotent image of Christ. Not a Christ who swings in and destroys the people who slander us. No, he points us to a suffering Christ. And this is the same portrait that Dietrich Bonhoeffer was introduced to in Harlem. When we think of Jesus' suffering, of course, we think, and, and Peter thinks, of the cross. Aubrey read to us a moment ago. Um, get to that in a minute. Verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So what's supposed to happen is we are supposed to think like Jesus thought as the suffering Christ. And how did he think? A moment ago, Aubrey read to us the passage from Luke where Jesus is on the cross suffering not just physical death but also public shame and ridicule. And in that moment, what was Jesus thinking? He said, Father, forgive them. And that's the posture we should have whenever we are a community um, in this world. So, um, thinking about how we should live in the world, um, I'm going to step away from 1 Peter, and um, there's another book I want to, I guess, preach from. Um, if that's okay with you, Aubrey, it's called Eat, Pray, Love um, by Elizabeth Gilbert. And um, should have seen first service, first service. I think he said, Dear Betsy, yeah. No, I'm not going to preach from that. I'm going to go back to 1 Peter. And, and Peter gives us, Peter gives us what our community, what the Church of the Incarnation, what the church in Harrisonburg should look like as we live out our faith, as we think like a suffering Christ in our, in our wider community. And he gives us three things. Actually, gives us four things, but stick with me. Pray, love, and eat. Okay, so if you're taking notes, those are the three points for this week. All right. Verse 7. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. We are to be a praying community. We pray because God listens. We pray because God acts. We pray because God acts differently when we pray than when we don't pray. We need to pray for what we need to get through suffering. We need to pray for those who slander us, and we need to forgive them. We need to pray for our community and the needs in our community, both inside and outside the church. We need to pray here in corporate worship, as we do every Sunday. We need to pray in our small groups, we need to pray when we're alone in our quiet times. <laughs> Paul says we should be praying without ceasing. We need to be talking to God in direct and thoughtful ways. We need to be a community that prays together. We need to be continually thinking about how we can do this more, how we can do this better, how we can engage not just folks in our church, but in other churches and other traditions here in Harrisonburg to pray and to pray together. What's the biggest hindrance for you that keeps you from becoming a prayer? Prayer. Um, busyness? 
not being aware of the needs around you that you should be praying for, too much noise, too much partying, that's what Peter seems to be pointing to here. He says, be self-controlled and sober-minded in, in, um, in uh, contrast with the, with the people around you. Um, and certainly if you're constantly partying and getting drunk and being part of these orgies, um, I'm not mentioning JMU, but uh, Peter was talking about um, not a whole lot of prayer goes on there. Um, we need to make time to pray. Not just take time to pray. We need to make time to pray. And we need to not get in too comfortable a posture when we sit to pray, like with pillows and in bed. Peter says, be self-controlled, be alert, and pray. So as a community, the first thing we need to be is a praying community. Secondly, if you look at verse 8, Peter says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Like Jesus on the cross, we need to be forgiving those who wrong us, both inside and outside the church. Peter places this at the top of the list. He says, above all, love. You've got to wonder if Peter, uh, as he's writing this to these early churches, um, if Peter was thinking of the time he was with Christ and Christ was teaching his disciples about forgiveness. And Peter was, kind of shook his head a little bit and said, what if, what if somebody does it over and over again? What if they do it like four or five times? And Jesus said, forgive them. So what if it's you know, six times? Jesus said, forgive them. And Peter said, well, surely not seven times. And Jesus, and Jesus said, nope. You just got to keep going and going and going. Seven times isn't even close. We need to forgive. So the church, living in community with one another, and within this wider community of Harrisonburg, we've got to be marked by love and forgiveness. We need to respond to, in love in all situations, not just when you're being slandered, but in, in everything we do. Recently I had a client who's a Christian. Um, who, because of his faith, uh, is involved with serving the uh, homeless folks uh, here down in downtown Harrisonburg. A couple months ago, there was a situation where it was raining, and he was with some of the homeless guys, and they were taking shelter from the rain, and they were doing it on, on private property. And in the course of what happened, the police were called, the police came and issued a trespass notice telling these folks, including this, this uh, guy, that uh, um, they, they couldn't come back to that property. Okay. So a couple weeks later, um, my client was downtown and was going around the corner, and the, the, the homeowner, she says that my client, in, in going around the corner, took steps across the, the grass on her property. Um, and so she had him arrested and charged with trespassing. So we went to court, and of course it was the trial of the century, and, uh, um, and he was found not guilty because he had a good lawyer. Um, <laughs> and as we, as we left the courtroom, we were standing in the hallway kind of wrapping some things up and talking a little bit, and the lady, the homeowner, um, com comes out past us and says something really nasty to my client. Um, 
I could tell my client was eager to respond. And uh, I said, you know, be quiet. And he said, and she, she walked by. And he said, well, what do I do? And I said, forgive her. That's, that's what you have to do. You have to forgive her. That's the sort of community we need to be. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love holds together a community and puts us right with the wider community. All right, so we've got pray, love, and eat. Eat's really two points, and it really isn't eating, but anyway. The third point Peter makes is we need to show hospitality. Look at verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, the context of this and what he's talking about to his readers is probably um, in, that, in that day as people traveled um, and as Christians traveled, um, it, it became custom in the church pretty, pretty uh, quickly to put Christians up in, in your home when they're coming through town. For one thing, the inns were kind of, in the society, kind of these places of debauchery and kind of unsafe. Um, but also, and, and there were traveling missionaries and, and pastors and so forth, and they would stay in the homes of Christians. But I think for us, hospitality is more than that. I think we need to be marked as a Christian that brings people into our homes, especially other Christians, especially people in our church. I want to encourage you, as, as Peter encouraged his readers, to embrace this form of love, to welcome people into your homes. Now, for some of us, this comes naturally. And for the rest of us, uh, Peter added the words, without grumbling. Um, you know, for each of us, what we do and what we're willing to do can look a little different, depending on our situation. Um, and so what my encouragement to you to do is to take one step further. Um, if you've never had anybody in your home, one time in the next six months, invite somebody into your home. If you do it every couple months, do it more frequently. If you do it a lot, but with just people you know, take one step further and invite somebody you don't know from our church into your home. And for some of you, and this is a plug for next week's uh, annual celebration, for some of you, hospitality means it's time for you to step up and host a small group in your home. Um, and for each of us, that's going to look different, but I encourage you that Peter says we need to be a community that shows hospitality to one another. Peter's uh, fourth point, this is the second part of eat, is uh, verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Unlike some of Paul's passages, Peter doesn't list out a whole bunch of spiritual gifts here. And I think that's kind of good. I think sometimes we get bogged down on Paul and treat them as kind of exclusive or exhaustive lists of, of the spiritual gifts. But that's, that's not what, what Peter's saying here. He talks generally about serving gifts and speaking gifts. Um, we have gifts that benefit one another. And gifts are often discovered in service. Um, you know, we have artists in our church, we have leaders in our church, we have people who speak in public, we have folks who set up and tear down for bagels and coffee, we have folks who work with the children. 
There's some people who are here eager to meet somebody who's new, and there's others who don't want to do that. They would rather be the person that sits with somebody in the hospital in quiet while they're um, convalescing. There's some great cooks in here. Another plug for the chili cook-off next week. But whatever your gifts are, we all bring them to the table um, in a way that benefits our church and benefits Harrisonburg. We must be a community marked by service. Service to one another. Another image from Peter's life comes to my mind. And maybe it was in his mind when he wrote this. And that is Peter seated with Jesus before him with a towel and a basin washing his feet. Verse 10 says we are to be good stewards of God's varied grace. And then in verse 11 in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Have any of you ever been to Luray Caverns? It's one of those things that people come from far away to see, but we never go to, right? Um, if, you ever, if you've ever been there, if you ever get a chance to go there, there's something there that's, at first you think it's kind of corny, but it's actually really neat. Back in uh, the 1950s, Leland Sprinkle was there and discovered that if you, if you hit these, uh, stalactites, you know, the, the long icicle-looking things that are um, some sort of mineral deposits. Um, if, you, if you hit them, they, they produce different tones. And he went through and he found the whole range of tones and he made this organ that is played uh, in the cavern. And, and it, it's kind of eerie, but beautiful to listen to music being played on these um, stalactites. We are stewards, we the church are stewards of God's varied grace. As a community of exiles and sojourners living here in Harrisonburg, sure, sometimes we're out of step with our culture, maybe even occasionally slandered or reviled. But if we are a community marked by prayer, hospitality, service, and above all, love, we can be like that strange and beautiful music produced by Uh, Sprinkles, great stalactite organ. We will surprise everyone who sees us, and they can't help. But consider, there might just be something to this Jesus on the cross, suffering, and his amazing love. To Jesus Christ be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.